I want to see if, uh, if you would agree with this. Uh, and if you do, just say amen. It is entirely possible to be sincere and yet sincerely wrong. Amen, right? You, do any of you know that from personal experience? Really? Okay, I thought maybe. Um, and, and there are some very, very sincere people in the world who are completely off base on their track, but they're absolutely confident that they're on the right track, correct? There are people who say things that they're sure are correct, and they're absolutely incorrect. There are decisions that get made with the sincerest of hopes, and they turn out to be the wrong decisions, right? And sometimes these are just minor little issues, and sometimes they have massive consequences. But it is possible and even common to be sincere and be sincerely wrong. And sometimes the consequences are light and sometimes they're heavy. Let me show you a couple of light consequence ones. Someone somewhere had this meeting in a studio and said, you know what would be a good idea? Instead of Sean Connery, let's have Timothy Dalton play Bond. That was just a bad idea. Somewhere, someone sitting in a studio said, you know what would be great? Let's put Pierce Brosnan in a musical. Right? <laughs> I'm not saying they were not sincere. I'm just saying they were a little off base. And it doesn't just show up in movies. It shows up in fashion trends, like, for instance, the lovely mullet. <laughs> Anybody here ever have a mullet? <laughs> Only a couple people being honest. Um, how about this uh, amazing, you know, the fashion world was turned on its ear when this fashion trend came in and people started dressing like that. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful thing? I, I distinctly remember the first time I saw a kid walking with his pants like that and I was so shocked. And then somebody said, oh yeah, that's the cool thing now. And I said, it is not. <laughs> There's no way people think that's cool. I said, I give this trend five minutes and it'll be gone. And it's been like 10 years, and I still see knuckleheads walking around looking like that. Sometimes it's Hollywood, sometimes it's fashion. Uh, maybe uh, you had a great insight on a great investment opportunity back in the 80s, and you invested in Betamax. And I don't care how sincere you were, you didn't win in that investment. And as I said, sometimes these these misdirections, sometimes these sincere efforts that go in the wrong direction, sometimes they're relatively harmless and we can laugh about them, and sometimes they are devastatingly tragic, like in the case of the Jonestown Massacre. Sincere people, right? Committed people. And of course, that's just one example of a cult that went just incredibly bad. There are many, many examples that we could give of people that were committed, devoted, sincere people who were on the wrong path, no matter how sincere they were. I, I don't think we can even mention this without talking about Muslim terrorism. I mean, I mean, there's so many people in the name of Islam who are killing other people and sacrificing their own lives in the process, and they are sincere. And they are sincerely wrong. 
And, and it, no matter how politically incorrect it might be to say that a person is wrong in their belief, that a person is wrong in their actions, there is a right and there is a wrong, amen? There are standards of truth that come from God Himself. And there are some things that are wrong no matter how sincere you are. And as I think about the really sad things that, that, where people are sincere but sincerely wrong, one of the ones that comes to my mind, is, it's, a, it's a massive thing. There's just like tens of thousands of people totally sincere and they couldn't be more wrong. <laughs> We're going to have to start dividing the room, the SC people over here, UCLA people over here. Um, so my point is this. In spite of how sincere you may be, if you have put your heart and soul and mind and attitude and action behind something that is misguided and incorrect, you are going to live worse than a wasted life. You're going to live a life that is tragic, a life that does damage, a life that hurts others, a life that misses the opportunity that God has given you. And so we've been talking about this issue of God's calling. And we said that Jesus says to us, come to me. And in his efforts, in his call to come to him, he, he tells us that if we come to him, he will give us rest. And then he also says, come with me. And as we come with him, we're going to experience the whole fullness of life that Jesus designed us to have. And we only are going to have that as we walk with him. And so we've been doing this sermon series where we're discussing that and talking about it and trying to, trying to get a, a grasp of it so that it's not just theoretical for us, but that it's practical. Because just as, as true as it is that a person can be sincere and sincerely wrong, a person can be right and insincere, right? A person can know the truth and not put their life behind it. A person can know what, it, what the truth is about God, what the truth is about Christ, what the truth is about salvation, and they could just sort of put it in their hip pocket and not think about it, and it doesn't change their life, and it doesn't make any difference. And I'm telling you, Jesus didn't come to lay down his life and die on a cross so that he would not make a difference for us. So it's one thing to be sincere and sincerely wrong. It's another thing to be right and insincere. What God has in mind for us is a life where we know the truth and the truth actually sets us free to live the way that he's called us to live, to experience what it is to walk with him when he calls us to do that. And so today, we're going we're gonna to be talking about this issue of what do we do with this calling. And I want you to remember that, that every person who's passionate about something, every person who's devoted to something, every person who's committed to something is not necessarily right. And it is easy to get on the, right, on the wrong path. In fact, the scripture tells us that Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of what? Light. Listen, we all know that Satan tempts us and he tries to harm us and all that kind of stuff. Here's what I need to tell you about Satan. I don't preach about Satan very much because I don't really care much about Satan. But here's the deal. When Satan comes to influence our lives, he does not come holding a sign that says, I am Satan and I'm here to ruin your life, right? 
He disguises himself as an angel of light. And so there are ideas and philosophies and people that are sharing things with us that seem attractive and interesting. And we sort of slip down a slippery slope until we've gotten so far from the truth that we end up completely lost. And that's his strategy. And, and so today we're going to, in our series, we're going to consider a man who was absolutely sincere. I bet you that nobody in this room was any more devoted to their faith than this man. Absolutely committed, absolutely devoted, put his whole life behind it. He was sincere, and yet he was sincerely wrong. And we find his story beginning in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible with you, turn it to Acts chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, look on with somebody near you, and let me just encourage you to bring a Bible when you come on Sunday mornings, because you're going to need it. And if you don't have a Bible and you want one, all you need to do is let one of the leaders know, and we will put a Bible in your hands before you leave, okay? But bring your Bibles with you, because we always use them on Sunday mornings. So go to Acts chapter 7, and let me tell you what's going on in Acts chapter 7 before we pick it up in verse 58. There's this guy named Stephen. He's one of the young men who is a servant in the early church. This is just, just a short time after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And this guy, Stephen, is not only one who serves people and cares for the needy, but he also preaches the gospel. And wherever he goes, he's influencing people for Jesus. And his gospel presentations are causing such a stir that the Jewish religious leaders are starting to take notice of him the way they took notice of Jesus, the way they took notice of the apostles, and they're going to try to intervene with him, and they're going to try to stop it. So they arrest him, and they basically put him on trial, this sort of Mickey Mouse little trial where they pull a bunch of priests together, and they say, you give us an answer for why you're preaching these things. And Stephen, all throughout the seventh chapter of Acts, basically gives the gospel to these priests and preaches Jesus to them. And they come to hear the truth of the gospel of who Jesus is and that he is the Messiah and that he died for their sins. And they don't want to hear any of it. And they finally get to the point where he's saying that Jesus is God and to them that's blasphemy and they've had enough. And so they literally physically grab him and they drag him out of the city because it's the city of Jerusalem and you cannot execute someone there in the city. You have to go outside the city gates. So they drag him outside the city and they pick up stones and they're about to stone Stephen to death. And that's where we pick up the story. Acts chapter 7 verse 58. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, this is our guy, Saul. And this is the first time we meet Saul. And it says that he is there at the stoning of Stephen. Now, we go on to find out that Saul is actually one of the priests. He's a young priest who has been studying under these leading priests. And he's one of the Pharisees. And... Uh, he goes along with them in this process, and when it's time to stone him, these guys have these beautiful white robes that they can't get dirty, right? So what do they do? They take off their robes, and they give them to one of the young guys, and that's Saul, and they say, I want you to hold the robes while we stone this guy. And so Saul is there at the stoning of Stephen, and he's holding the robes, or, or guarding the robes, if you will, when they're stoning him. And then verse 59 says, they went on stoning Stephen... As he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Just a quick point on this. Isn't it amazing to see Stephen's faith? 
Not only is he willing to preach when death is on the line, not only is he unwilling to recant his faith in Christ in order to save his own life, but he calls out to God while the stones are hitting him, he is in prayer. And, and what is he praying for? He's praying that God would forgive those who are stoning him. Who does that remind you of? It's just what Jesus did on the cross. He prayed for those who were torturing and executing him. And so Stephen has become this amazing example of Jesus. No wonder they had had enough of him. And then pick it up in chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made a loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women to put them in prison. Let's stop there. Another thing that I just want to point out because this story is so compelling and I don't want us to miss these points is I want you to notice that not only does Stephen pray for his captors, but even while he is praying, he dies. And, and you stop and you look at this and you go, how can God allow this? I mean, here's a guy who just says, listen, I will answer the call, Jesus. I will come to you. I will come with you. I will follow you even to the point where I'm facing persecution because of this. And he still dies. Don't you want to rewrite the story where angels come down and they zap the guys with the stones and then there's a bunch of dead priests laying on the ground and Stephen walks away? That's the way I want this story to go. Because if I'm ever in Stephen's sandals, that's the way I want it to go for me. How can God allow such a thing? And here's the thing I want you to notice. As we look into chapter 8, it says uh, in verse 1, On that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Do you remember in Acts 1.8 what Jesus said right before he ascended into heaven? He said to his apostles, You will be my witnesses. Right? Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the uttermost parts of the earth. But what had the followers of Jesus done? They had stayed right where they were in Jerusalem because that's how we are, you guys. We love our comfort. They had homes there. They had jobs there. They had families there. And frankly, most of the people they really cared about going to heaven were in Jerusalem anyway. So they were just ministering there in Jerusalem, maybe in a little bit of the surrounding region of Judea. But what happens when Stephen gets killed? It says the church scatters. Where did they scatter? Judea and Samaria. And eventually from there, we see Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch and then the church in Antioch and the Gentile church is born. All of that happens in connection with the stoning of Stephen. And it's so difficult for us sometimes when we see that we're crying out to God, we know the promises of Scripture, that God says, listen, whatever you ask according to my will, I will give it to you. And, and we're asking that persecution will stop. And we're asking that people would stop being put to death for their faith. And we're asking that God would do that. And frankly, it is frustrating to pick up the newspapers and continue to see the way that people are being put to death just because they're followers of Jesus today. And we go, what in the world is happening, God? And I don't mean to make light of it. I don't mean to make it um, simplistic or in any way trite. But here's what I want to say, you guys. We don't have 
God's perspective. We look at what happened to Stephen and we say, poor Stephen. But Stephen would argue with you. The privilege to be a, 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 a martyr, a witness for Christ to that point, just as Jesus said he would be, and to know that God used that to bring the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Listen to this and think on it. There's nobody sitting in this room today who would even know the gospel if this spread had not taken place. Because we don't live in Jerusalem, do we? And so God is working in ways that I don't, I don't claim to understand. I don't know what he's doing at the time, but I do know this. God is good, God is able, and God is right. And so Stephen goes through this terrible thing, and the result is that the persecution begins. And who is at the center of this persecution? The guy who was holding the robes. Look at verse 3. But Saul began ravaging <clears throat> the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. We're told later that not only did he have the power to imprison followers of Jesus, but he even was putting them to death, just as they had put Stephen to death. And this becomes Saul's mission. This is what I will do. Now, let me ask you a question. When Saul was doing this, was he convinced that he was serving God? 100%. Completely sincere and still completely wrong. So Saul had this mission, and he was committed to it. So committed that he made it his whole life's path. And when you're on a path that strong and you're that committed and it's that publicly known what you believe and why you believe it and where you're going and what you're doing, it is really tough to turn around, isn't it? Even if you begin to scratch your head and go, wait a minute, does this still make sense? But you've got all this committed and now you've got all this history with it. It's real tough to turn around, but let me tell you something. With God, nothing is impossible, especially when it comes to turning around lives. Turn to Acts chapter 9. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground. And, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. He's on his way to carry out his mission for God. And who interrupts his mission? God. And if we could paraphrase here with all respect to the Lord, if we could just paraphrase and essentially the Lord says to him, Saul, I appreciate your zeal, but you're going the wrong direction. You're confused. You think that it's about you and what you can do for me. You still think it's about rules and law keeping. You still think it's about works, 
But it's not about any of those things. It's about grace and it's about the blood of Christ and that's why I came. And you're coming to, to try to stand against me when you think that you're standing for me. And you can just imagine what is going through Saul's mind. Just imagine being that sure and that wrong and now finding out. And just to make sure that he knows it's not a dream, he's blind. Can't see. Has to be led into Damascus by the hand and he's put into a room. And, and let's pick it up in verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, <coughs> get up, go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. What would you be doing? Of course he's praying. He's been blind for three days and he just found out that he's on the wrong side of God. Of course he's praying. And Paul tells, I mean, God tells Ananias to look for him. And what is the sign? He doesn't say, well, he's kind of a short, bald guy in a blue tunic. He doesn't say that. You know what he says? How are you going to find him? How am I going to know? He'll be the one who won't stop praying. That's Paul. He's not even Paul yet. He's still Saul. And it says um, that he sends Ananias to him, and he's praying. Um, and then pick it up in verse uh, 12. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered the Lord, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name." Now, can you relate to Ananias? Have you ever had one of those moments when you, you heard the call of God, you knew that God was prompting you in some way, in some direction? He maybe taught you something from his word that made you very uncomfortable or, or maybe just prompted you in your spirit about something that you needed to do and you knew it was God and yet it just seemed like God must not understand the whole story and all you could do is explain to God. That's what Ananias does. He says, Lord... Um, I'm sure you mean well, but you must not know who this guy is. If I go to him and I tell him that I am a follower of Jesus, do you know what's going to happen to me? And God says, you know, Ananias, I actually heard about that. And um, I don't think you need to worry about it. I just want you to go and do what I asked you to do. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. And, and let me just stop there before I get to my main point in this passage. I just want to encourage some of us that are here today who know what it's like to have loved ones. Maybe you're a parent who has a kid who's just away from God. Or, or maybe there's somebody that you love, a spouse, a, a brother, a sister, a parent, a friend, that you've been praying for and they are just not interested in the gospel and they're just going off and doing their thing and doing the whole prodigal thing and, and living it up and laughing at you for your faith. And you worry and you fret and you're concerned and you pray and I just want to remind you who our God is. Because if that was Saul's mom and your son grew up to be a murderer of Christians... How heartbreaking would that be? And yet God says, 
He is my chosen one. He's not gone. He's not lost. The power of Christ's grace extends to the deepest regions of the world and the darkest corners of men's hearts. God is able. And so keep praying. Keep looking to God. Keep calling on the name of God and asking Him to reach that lost loved one. Because here is Saul, and he was this far into it, and he was going the exact opposite direction that he needed to go. But God, in His perfect timing, did what it took. And He got a hold of him, and He brought him back. Now, verse 16 is where I really wanted you to see. God says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, I realize that today's sermon is getting to be a bit of a downer. We start off with Stephen, so faithful, so good, so righteous, so committed, so willing to honor God, and he ends up stoned to death. And I, and I stand up here and go, well, it's not that bad. And you go, yeah, it's bad. I don't want to get stoned to death. And then we move on and we say, yeah, but look how gracious God is to Paul. He calls him and he says, I'm going to make you my servant. And then he says, he's sending Ananias to him to tell him what? If you follow me, you will suffer. Now listen, there are a lot of other places you could be this morning, and I'm not here to, to knock other ministries. There's a thousand million great preachers preaching right now today that you could be listening to and hearing a fantastic sermon and thinking, man, why did I ever listen to Pastor Doug, okay? <laughs> There's also a whole bunch of people preaching out there today who are preaching this half-gospel message where what they're saying is, if you'll just come to Jesus, if you'll just pray this prayer, if you'll just write a check to my ministry, if you'll just do these things in the right way, then God will remove all suffering from your life. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more disease. There will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. And I will throw my hat in with those guys and say, all of that is true. The day is coming when there will be no sorrow, no sickness, no pain, and no death. But that day's not today. If you're going to live on this earth with or without Jesus, you're going to suffer sometimes. There's just, there's just natural disasters hit everybody. The flu hits everybody. Crime, relationship problems, it hits everybody. But you know what's challenging? Is that the Word of God tells us that if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, in addition to the regular trouble that the world has, you're going to get some Jesus trouble too. That there's going to be some problems that you face, some pain that you experience because you follow Jesus. I wish I could cut those spots out of my Bible and make them not true. But it's true. He says you're going to suffer. That's not something you usually hear much when it comes to religious calls, and this is Paul's call. God is calling Saul to become Paul, to live a whole new life, an important life, a world-changing life, but he says it's going to involve suffering. Now skip down to verse 17 of chapter 9. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul... 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Good news, right? Verse 18, and immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight and got up and was baptized, and he took food and was strengthened. Now, for several days, he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. What a weird thing that must have been. He came to kill them, and now he's at their Bible study, sitting at their feet, listening to them teach him. And it's not long before he becomes so clearly focused on the gospel and his eyes have been opened by the gift of faith that now being this brilliant theologian that he is, he's now able to articulate the faith better than people who have been uh, studying it for some time. And he becomes the teacher. As we continue, look at uh, verse uh, 20. Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all of those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. He went from being a killer of Christians to being a leader of Christians with one encounter with Jesus. It's powerful. And you know what happened? People took notice, as they should, when someone comes to Christ. There should be change. It should be obvious. People begin to ask questions. What happened to this guy? What changed her? She didn't used to be like that. They saw it in Paul. Wasn't this the guy who came to kill us and now he's teaching us? This is the beginning of Paul's journey with God. But what I want us to do is I want us to fast forward now past about three more decades. 30 years go by, and in those 30 years, what is Saul, who has now become Paul, what is he doing? He's traveling constantly. He's preaching in regions where the gospel has never been heard. He's planting churches, leading people to Christ. He's casting out demons, healing the sick, um, and, and encouraging the lost, and leading people into a relationship with Christ. And now... Paul finds himself some 30 to 35 years later sitting in a Roman prison as an old, broken-down man. Now, we know Paul's story. Most of you are probably well aware that he goes on to be the great apostle Paul after this Damascus Road thing. We know that he um, speaks and, and plants churches and does all that. But even at this point in his life, nobody had a clue how significant this guy was. Nobody would have ever dreamed or imagined that long after Nero's light had burned out, Paul's light would still be shining. That long after, after one, uh, one civilization gave way to the next and gave way to the next and gave way to the next, Paul's thoughts and writings and ideas would continue to shape people so that today we're sitting here reading the words that Paul penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Nobody had any idea. So I want you to forget that you know all of that, and I want you to pretend that you're maybe like the Roman soldier who is chained up to this guy, and it's your job to watch him, and you look at him, and he, it's just kind of unimpressive, maybe bordering on pathetic. He's just old now. And his body bears the marks of all of the suffering and all of the persecution and all the difficulty that he's gone through. 
And all he does now, really, is he just sits over in the corner scribbling, just writing some letters, some meaningless, unimportant letters. And you think, well, if he had any impact, his impact is over now, right? Because, I mean, how much difference can a letter make? And he's old and he's broken down. And he's incarcerated. And all he can do is write letters. And it looks like he's failed. And he sums up his life with Jesus for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So flip over to 2 Corinthians. Just a couple of books to the right from Acts. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll pick it up in verse 23. Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And he's explaining some of what it's been like. He's, he's actually defending his apostleship because there are some who are claiming that he's not a true apostle. And in verse uh, 23, he says, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? And who is led into sin without my intense concern? So he lays it out and he says, listen, you know, Ananias came and he, he brought me this message from God and he said, you're going to have to suffer as you follow me. And he says, now I'm getting to the end. Let me tell you how it's been. Now, in other places, he tells us about his joy, about his peace, about his hope, about his comfort, about all the miracles that God did and all the many times that God came along and supported him. But in the midst of that journey of the come with me part, in the midst of that journey, this suffering actually happened to a real godly man. Now he was on the right track and he was still suffering. And you think, wow, what a weird story. What a unique situation. No, not unique at all. You just go through the scriptures and you find it again and again. Think about Jeremiah. Jeremiah, prophet of God, for 40 years preaches repentance to the Jews and doesn't have one convert in 40 years. Instead of coming around, uh, alongside of him and, and cheering for him, they throw him in a well and leave him for dead. Or take uh, David. After being anointed king, what did he spend the early part of his uh, adulthood doing? Running for his life. Sleeping in caves, having to go to foreign countries, uh, living through wars and attacks and battles. Or how about Daniel? He said, I'm going to follow God no matter what the cost. And the cost was great. They threw him into a den full of hungry lions. Or what about Daniel's friends? They would have rather had the lions then. They got thrown into a flaming hot furnace. And by the way, they all came out okay. Or how about John the Baptist? Did he come out okay? Yes and no. 
John the Baptist's head was removed from his body because he would not renounce his teachings about Jesus Christ. And if you were to ask him today, and I hope I get to ask him one day, if you were to ask him today, I promise you he would tell you it was the best thing that ever happened to him. It's a matter of perspective, isn't it? And by the way, this guy Paul, he lost his head too. Right after, sometime just after writing Second Timothy, they, they took him outside and they chopped off his head. All of the apostles were martyred for their faith, except John, and he was exiled to a deserted island where he lived out his days alone. Christians are suffering, even today. We know that our president just had meetings to, to try to move things along, to try to get this American pastor released from Iranian prison. We know about the atrocities that are happening in Nigeria and throughout many parts of Africa. We know about what's going on in Egypt and throughout parts of the Middle East. We know how Christians are being put to death every day for their faith. It's happening. It's just that it's not happening in our neighborhoods. So it's still happening. You stop and you go, wait a second. How can this be? How's this possible? If God is so good, how can we see so much suffering from those who follow him? I think the answer comes down to what Jesus said. In Mark chapter 8, it says, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his what? Cross. Guys, the gospel is incomplete without the cross. The cross that Jesus hung on and the cross that he calls us to take up every day. And so when you think about this, all these people, and we could, we could go on and on with illustrations from right now today, all throughout the history of the church, even from our own lives, all the hurt, all the suffering, all the times when we called on God and we just, just don't know why he didn't answer the way we wanted him to. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to follow him if the cost is like that? And he made no... Um, Bones about the fact that the cost is like that. Is it worth it? Does it make sense? Well, we could go back and ask Paul, right? Because in Philippians 3, he says, yeah, I had all this stuff and I had all this honor and I had all this money and I had all of this prestige. And in the end, I said, it's all rubbish and I threw it away and I exchanged it for the cross of Jesus Christ and it was the best move that I ever made. Beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, whipped, imprisoned. I wouldn't trade it for a moment without Christ. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, listen, I have fought the good fight. I can hear them coming. I hear the soldiers marching toward my room. I know that my head is about to be removed from my body. And here's what I have to say, Timothy. I fought the good fight. I have finished the race and there is a crown waiting for me, and I can't wait. See, it's perspective, you guys. Either we believe what we say we believe, or we don't. And I'm not minimizing the pain, 
And I'm not saying the suffering is inconsequential and that it doesn't break God's heart. It does break God's heart, but it's not the whole story. And if we're going to walk with him, we have to be prepared. And I don't want any of us confused and I don't want any of us dismayed because we got this half gospel presentation and we thought that there was not supposed to be any of this in the Christian life. Because what do we do then when our experience tells us otherwise? If the gospel that we believe is a gospel that says there is no suffering for those who follow Jesus, what are we supposed to think when we start suffering? We're going to think that the gospel is not true, that Jesus is not who he says he is, and we're going to be lost. And so we need to understand the whole story. I'm not trying to freak anybody out. I'm not trying to scare anybody, and I'm certainly not trying to depress anybody. I just want you to know, walking with Jesus is costly, and it's worth every penny. And the longer we walk with him, the more we know it from experience. The cross... It's central. It's the central moment in all of human history. It's the central symbol in all of the Christian faith. It's why we continue to think about the cross. And I think, at least partially, it's why Jesus said to us, keep celebrating the Lord's Supper. And every time you do, remember me, remember my death on the cross, and understand that it's not just me that's going through this, it's us. It's us. 